and we got to a million dollars of revenue real quick. Hello, and welcome to Shopify Masters, the podcast powered by Shopify, your companion for starting and building a business. I'm Shuang Esther Shan. And I want you to imagine a world where you don't have to choose between a healthy protein-packed bar and a sweet chocolate candy. That's exactly how Midday Squares is disrupting the afternoon snack game with the first functional chocolate bar. The team's aim is to create a snack that is everything a chocolate bar isn't and everything a protein bar wishes it was. Selling their one millionth bar just 20 months after launching, Midday Squares continues to change the snack market. Nick Seltrelli is one of the co-founders at Midday Squares, and he's here to share their marketing and fundraising strategies. Nick, welcome to the show. What is doing? We just passed our 12 million bars, so I got to update that description. We've sold 12 million bars. Awesome. Okay. So I think the idea of functional chocolate is really exciting for all of us. We love chocolate. So can you explain to our listeners, what does functional chocolate mean to you? Yeah. So it's like, rethink of what a candy chocolate bar should be today. And it it probably wouldn't look like what, you know, Hershey's Mars or Nestle has put out and nothing against that. It's just what would a chocolate bar look like in this day and age? So for us, functional chocolate is high fiber, high protein, and keeps you full up to four hours. And is really used as something to get you to your next meal. So not only do you get the indulgence, but you actually get some value out of it when you're on the go. So you can eat it and feel satiated. So that's functional chocolate. So you actually have extensive experience in the startup environment. How did you determine that Midday Squares was a viable business opportunity? Data is abundant today. And we always talk about data being the new oil. You know what I'm saying? You hear that a lot. But what does that actually mean? And so data, if mined properly, and a lot of times people think you need to be like a data analyst or like, you know, some type of engineer to do that. But if you just like read the way Warren Buffett or... Charlie Munger has done and derive patterns from it, uh, you can actually create a lot of value. And for us, it was seeing the momentum that we saw in the category of real chocolate growing, plant-based chocolate growing, and just being able to take that data and say, hey, there seems to be a massive pond here. And that pond seems to be full of a tremendous amount of fish we should probably figure out how to start fishing in that pond. And that brought us to the chocolate category of which people are like, well, that's that's a competitive category. Yes, it's competitive. But by definition, competitive means that the pond is full of fish. And so if we figure out our way to catch those fish in different strategies amongst the other fisher people, then we could be successful. And that's really the whole mottos was that Real chocolate was growing at an unprecedented rate. Refrigerated category in the grocery store was growing at an unprecedented rate. And so was the plant-based industry. You take all those tailwinds and invent a product in that category. You don't have a guarantee that you're going to be successful, but you have a pretty good shot at being successful when you have $142 billion traded per year in chocolate. And you also worked as a software engineer. So how do you think your previous career and experience really helped you to prep for this role? It's all about solving problems and micro problems. Really, at the end of the day, I don't care what type of an engineer. You don't even need to be an engineer to understand the core principles of how you should solve problems as an engineer, which is to take a really big problem and break it into very manageable problems that are easy to solve and then solve each of those small problems one by one. And by the end of 
the problem, you should have solved the big problem. And so if we would have started out in 2018 and said, hey, we got to go make this chocolate bar and we got to figure out how to build a manufacturing plant and we got to figure out how to get 46 distributors on board across North America to even get this product to stores and get like the list just goes on of these tremendous feats that are required to get the product to where it is. If you start there, you get analysis paralysis. But if you start at, hey, we got to come up with a recipe and the recipe needs to be able to sell at this price point in stores. And we would like to be at this aisle at Whole Foods. And you just go walk the aisle and work yourselves backwards and say, by this time, I would like to have a recipe and we don't think about anything else until then. That's how you use an engineer's brain to break down problems and you start solving them and you build momentum. Momentum is the most important piece when going after really big, audacious problems. And so I think just the discipline of how to solve these problems is what helps tremendously no matter what I'm going to do in my life. And we as a team are going to do is whether you're breaking down a coding problem or a chocolate problem or a go-to-market strategy, it's all the same. Yeah. And on the other side of your experience, you also mentioned that you had a mentor that was very impactful in your journey. What advice do you have for new entrepreneurs who are looking for mentorship or community um, to find somewhere where they can be involved in? Experience and serendipity is the most important thing. And so I would say probably try to take an untraditional path, meaning you know, if you're going to think about doing university, maybe you do one year of regular university cadence and then you go to night school and then you try to get into the job market as fast as possible. Uh, try to be of service to others as fast as possible. Try to be value add as fast as possible. Try to show up to as many events as possible um, and put yourself in as many collision fields as possible for serendipity to take place. And then when you find someone that's willing to bet on you, be of service to them. And for me, I got lucky that I had a gentleman when I was only 13 years old. My dad died when I was 10. This kind of gentleman, his name's Rory Olson, took me under his wing. And at that point, I didn't know that he was my mentor. I just know I was fascinated by who he was and what he was doing and the problems he was solving. And I always wanted to be around him and I wanted to be of service to him. And I tried to always, you know, be like, hey, I got this idea to try to solve this problem that you're always talking about. And I think he just saw a kid that wanted to apply himself. And from there, asked me to work for him in the summers. I got to see him build three companies uh, scaling in market caps from 100 to $1.4 billion and be part of all that conversation, just be around it. You don't even realize you're learning. You just are. Like you just, and then at a point in life, you end up in a position, you're like, wait a second, I've seen this before. And I think that's what privilege is. I think that's what being part of privilege is, is that you get to be a part of conversations and see shit that the average person doesn't. And what seems to be intuitive to you isn't to the average person. All I could say is average decisions will make you part of the average. This is a mathematical fact. Like if you give a data set average inputs, you end up with an average output. Um, so the only way for you to have a shooting chance at being an outlier is to make unaverage decisions. And the average person 
I hate to say it, is scared and lazy to put themselves in a many possible collision fields as possible. And so for me, my advice is don't do what your peers are doing and try to do something else. And if that means going to night school and working during the day when your peers are in the day, even though that night school might be harder from an execution standpoint, might take you longer, that's an unaverage decision for me because the average person doesn't want to do that. And so just think about the decision-making through that lens. And I think you'll get far in whatever your journey is. Mm -hmm. I think what's important to highlight is kind of counterintuitive to a lot of people when they think about mentorship, they think about what can the mentor teach me, but you're also telling people to think about what can you actually offer as a value add for a mentor and how do you change your life and your schedule to fit the path that you want to build for yourself. Absolutely. I think the biggest misconception on mentorship is that it's a relationship where you ask someone to be your mentor. And, and yes, that could be a version of it, but of all the most successful mentorships that I know of around me, none of them started by one asking the other person to be their mentor. Not one. I, I don't have that proof point. They all started in very serendipitous ways of where both parties almost didn't even know that they were in an exchange of value of some sort. I'm chatting with Nick Saltarelli, a co-founder at Midday Square, the makers of functional chocolate. So can you tell us about the initial investment that the team has put in to start Midday Squares? To date, I think it's been 22 million. And then I want to back it up to going back to the engineering mindset that you spoke about before. If we started this business and said, oh my God, we need 22 million, like I think we would have had analysis paralysis. So I think the investment, like the core investment to get this thing off the ground was like 20 grand. And that was to just get the momentum to prove to people that there was legs here and that we were working on something of viability. And we looked at it like a marathon. If you ask any marathon runner, when they're training for a marathon, they're training for pace per mile and you are attacking the marathon on a, what are you going to be doing in mile one, two, three, four, five, six, whatever, okay? So you're not going in and saying, I wanna be first place. You're saying, what do you believe the time first place is going to run the race at? So let's say it's 17 minutes and you're working yourself backwards for how many miles you have to run. And if, you run it at 16 minutes and 30 seconds, then in theory, you're gonna win if you think that the first place is gonna do it in 17. So now you have a tangible idea of what pace you need to hit per mile. And I think most of the work before starting an idea actually needs to go into the pace that you wanna run. And for us, it's like we knew that 20 Gs wasn't gonna get us to where we needed to go. You can't, you can't start a CPG business and compete um, in certain categories with only 20 grand. Uh, it's not true for all categories and not true for all business models, but in our sense, uh, we had to build a manufacturing plant. There was nobody that could do that. I mean, you're not going to build a manufacturing plant for 20 grand. Um, but we had never built a manufacturing plant before. And in fact, us three founders had never even been in the food business before. So now you got to work back into like, what are the momentum triggers and, and markers that you have to hit in order to build momentum to convince other people why they should bet on you. 
And so like 20 grand was our launch pad to get us from idea to finished product, not revenue, to finished product that we can actually go to the market and start selling. One of the areas on social that you and the team focuses on is sharing your process for fundraising and talking to different investors. So can you share some tips for other founders who are going through the process of pitching and actually finding the right investors for them? We started in 2017 and we spent the entire year getting the product fit. That's where the 20 grand went, was what is the product formula? What is the brand? And what is the go-to market strategy? 20 Gs, we give ourselves one year to get this nailed in, dialed in. At that time, it was, we were two squares in a package. So we want to be a 14 gram protein product, eight grams of fiber, this many calories at this price point. So you put that on a paper and we work ourselves back and then we get ourselves to market. That is a piece where timelines are really important because I think you can get lost in your own timelines if you don't give yourself deadlines. So it was like, hey, we have 12 months to figure out product formulation and everything and be ready to go to market. How much is that going to cost us? Do a little rough, you know, back of the paper math, get your idea. And that's how much money you need to get started, whether you have it on your own or you have to get friends and family to back you. You go to people and you tell them the grand vision, which is, hey, we want to create the world's next biggest chocolate company, but we're going to tell you the steps of how we're going to get there. And right now, all we know is that in the next 12 months, we're going to have a product that we can go to market with. I can't tell you further than this at this point, but this is, this is the goal. So imagine, and, and you, you tell people this, and then 12 months later, guess what? You have the product done. And people are like, oh, wow, interesting. You told me you were going to go do that. And tell as many people as possible. Tell funds, tell individual investors, tell your friends, tell your family. Keep yourself accountable to timelines. Then that year goes by and we go to the market. At this point, we were trying to have conversations of fundraising and we, we weren't getting very far because nobody wanted to bet on how much risk was left. So again, when we were out there saying, hey, we got this product, we went to go see a bunch of contract manufacturers. And for everybody listening, contract manufacturer is a third party that you pay to basically create your product for you. You give them what you need. They give you back your product. We went to 26 different ones and not one was capable of giving us midday squares. So now we're in a really weird position of where we either kill the idea or we have to go and bring this product to fruition and we have nobody that's going to make it, which means our cost for production is going to be ridiculously high, which means that we're going to probably burn a lot of capital in order to prove the idea out. And so there was, a, I literally remember with Les, Jake, those are my two partners and they happen to be my wife and, and brother-in-law. There was an inflection point. Do we kill the idea or do we go for this? And, and we still believe based on, you know, the, the early product trials that this thing was fire, like that we, we had the ability to win in this market. So what's the next step, right? You ask Shuang, it's like, do we go out and raise this money to build a manufacturing brand? Absolutely not. De-risk it. So we said at this point in time, could we make this thing in our condo and could we get to a million dollars of revenue? I think if we do that, we could prove that there's real traction here. Number two, we're going to get to a million dollars of revenue and we're not going to use Facebook ads. We're not going to use any ads. It has to be ground and pound or organic through our social media. Now, that's going to also send a signal to investors or anybody that, oh, these people got to revenue and they didn't pull levers that are available to them. 
yet, which means that there's probably strong product traction and do it in a really focused way in Montreal. So we set up, again, going back to these mini problems. The next problem after we spent 2017, 2018 was about getting to a million dollars of revenue. In fact, the original game plan was $250,000 of revenue um, before we decided anything else. And that's where, you know, my brother-in-law brought this storytelling component. He brought the idea to the table of telling a reality television show uh, through social media on Instagram and showing people the good, the bad, the ugly, kind of mixing, you know, Shark Tank, the Kardashians and, and Elon Musk's build in public strategy all into one and do that and show people what it means to take a grand version of building this massive chocolate company and doing it like you just asked me from scratch and in little mini problems. So we started recording in the condo and people were like, what the hell are you guys doing? And that spurred interest. That spurred people buying on our website. We put, uh, at this point in time, we couldn't even afford shipping nationally. So we made sure we're, we're from Montreal, Canada. So we only advertise, like we only told our story in Montreal and we charged people 50 cents on our website to do a transaction. And we would get in the car every night and do the deliveries ourselves, speak to our customer. So now all of a sudden you have our social media going, people are interested, they have a low friction point to buy the product, they then buy the product, we show up at their door, they start talking about it on their Instagrams, next thing you know, they're in their stores telling their stores, hey, you need to carry this product. Next thing you know, we got stores calling us and we got to a million dollars of revenue real quick in our area and we were still in a condo. Now, all of a sudden, when we were out there telling people that we wanted to build a manufacturing plant, guess what? People started to listen because now you're a million dollar revenue business out of your condo and they've been hearing you talk about this idea for two years already. And so they've seen it go from something that's in your brain to executed with dollars being transacted and real execution. And they're like, hey, why shouldn't I believe what these people are going to tell me next? And that's how you build momentum. And I think what is amazing about the social media strategy you've just told us about is the fact that you offer that behind the scenes look and you even share about the process of you guys going to different VCs and fundraising and investors. So can you tell our listeners a few tips about actually getting into the room, prepping for a pitch and finding the right investor for their business? A lot of people overcomplicate the investor pitch. Like for me, I'm trying to always get it done on six slides, 10 slides max. Your job is to get the person at the end of the table to see the big vision as quickly as possible and then explain to them why that should be believable. It all really starts with what you do prior to actually getting investors. And so for us, it's about executing in public. That execution in public brings in the right investor. So now all of a sudden, instead of you picking up the phone and cold calling people, you're just broadcasting what you're doing. And next thing you know, your phone's ringing of people that are interested in partaking in what you are doing. And so now you're building your Rolodex of pitches. And then, you know, my job when we're going into these fundraising processes, one, getting the fundraise cadence properly. And we can speak a little bit about that. How you fundraise is very important. It goes back to if you're going to run a marathon, you need to keep 
your mile pace or you're, you're going to hurt yourself in mile four. If you know that you got to do a three minute pace per mile and you're running at two minutes, maybe you're going to burn yourself out by mile four. And by the time you get to mile four, you're gassed and then it's, 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 it's over, right? So strategy is really important here. Uh, but really, once you get into that is, hey, I'm going to ask you for money. I'm then going to ask you to place a value on this business. And I need to know what your expectations is out of this investment. Is it you expect a 10x year investment in 10 years? If I know this information, again, that's why I say your work goes into prior to what you do when you show up to the pitch. Then I know that I have to prove to you why if you give me money, let's use very simple valuation at 10 million, how do I return to you 100 million for your 10 million that you gave me? And so my whole pitch is set up to prove to you that I could do that and then why you should believe that I can do that. That's it. Love it. Two simple, important steps to cover during a pitch. So you mentioned Leslie is your life partner and Jake is your brother-in-law. So you're going against the cliche of not working with friends or family. Can you tell us how you guys divide up the roles and make sure the relationship works on both personal and professional levels? I think when it comes to any partnership, it doesn't even matter whether you're family, friends, whatever. The, 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 the core thing is that your partners are your partners for a reason, not because they were the person that was in your apartment and felt like, hey, you're the closest person to me. Like, why don't we start a business? Now, it, it's cool if you want to do that. I just, I've been there and I don't think those are always the most successful partnerships. I think successful partnerships are best thought of like a puzzle piece. In order to complete a puzzle, you need three pieces that are going to fit together. And so if I was able to do all three of their tasks, then my suggestion to myself would have probably been, it's probably best to be a solopreneur. If I was literally able to do what Les could do and Jake could do, it would be easier to just be a solopreneur and just execute those because now you don't have to deal with the dynamic of human relations, which is partnerships. But we couldn't. And we're not partners because we're family members. We, I actually met my wife in a working capacity before we even dated and got married. So we were working relationship first, then happened to get married. And same thing with my brother-in-law. I had He was executing in another business that just happened to be really complimentary to what we wanted to do. And we all kind of found each other and were fanboy fangirls of each other because of the skill sets that we had. And we're like, hey, wouldn't it be really interesting to merge all of these skill sets and just be like one super machine? And that's the best partnership, in my opinion. Those are the partnerships that I hope for all of you listening that you find that relationship in your life of entrepreneurship of where you believe you're ex- and you need why, and that person across the room is why, and you're like, wow, if we just got together, we would kill it. That's how I think about partnerships. So family, I don't really care if you're family, friends, or whatever. It's all the same crap, in my opinion, like really is. It's just you have to ha have a yin and a yang that actually gets somewhere. The next thing I believe is that you need to be seeing a therapist together weekly through good times and bad. And this is where I don't know why, given this advice to so many people, and I would tell you probably less than 1% actually see me out on that advice. And the ones that do do it will go to therapy with their partner 
four times and stop. Oh, everything's good. We don't need that. Just before we got on this podcast, I, I always said if there was an index fund that allowed me to short founders that didn't see therapists on a weekly basis, I would buy that index fund all day. I believe, I think Y Combinator did a study on this, like 86% of the companies that didn't work under the Y Combinator banner uh, was founder conflict that dismantled the company. And so imagine like, like of all the fails, a massive portion of those fails just happened to be because the founders couldn't get along or they couldn't see eye to eye. That's a really big percentage. We've been seeing a therapist every single week as a unit, both individually. It's on our P&L. Our investors pay for it. Like, they, like they're happy to pay for it. I mean, it's something that's spoken about very openly. And we do that every week, good or bad. It doesn't matter if there's problems and it doesn't matter if everything's good. Sometimes we just show up. We don't even have anything to speak about because things are going good. But therapists will, will force us to get working and talk about anything because communication is the most important piece. That's how you win. Everybody in the founder space, and I know you know what is talking about, you know, mental health of being an entrepreneur, founder, this, this, that. We need to stop doing talking as a founder base and start actioning. I want it to be that it is the default that every single founder you know that's in partnership or solo is seeing therapy on a weekly basis. And, and that is the action we need as a base because all this talk doesn't get us anywhere. And it makes no sense that the average founder that I know in my circle doesn't seek help, doesn't see therapists and partnerships don't do it. So I just want to say on that piece, I'm really passionate about that because I'm such a huge believer in, in entrepreneurship as the core piece of, of great economies. For sure. And I think it's a true sign of how dedicated you are to the team first and making sure that you are always understanding and communicating, um, which is very rare to your point. Um, that you see within the founder space. Another thing that was rare I wanted to highlight is you mentioned that initially when you started to market midday squares, you didn't rely on Facebook ads. It was very like by foot, word of mouth and catering to a local market and also on your own channels, sharing your story. What are some elements that's in your current marketing stack and what channels are you investing in now? In terms of the advertising stack, you know, I think the reason why I believe early on it's important to potentially stay away from Facebook ads, um, especially if you want to be a retail-focused business on execution, is that Facebook could give you false positives. It's too easy to buy customers on these channels that you could convince yourself into product market fit really quickly and give yourself a false positive that... Being in a retail CPG business, being on a shelf is really the ultimate test of product market fit. Can you get on a shelf amongst a sea of competitors at a price point that allows you to turn? And so the advice I'm giving today is doesn't hold true for everything, but I'm speaking for the category of consumer packaged goods at grocery. It's very, very dangerous to rely on ads to start with as a product market fit validator because it could actually create false positives. That being said, once you execute and find true product market fit, you know, we all know Facebook could be an incredible accelerant 
of getting the word out there and dialing in your messaging. But our current stack is really simple. Tell incredible stories and figure out which story sticks. And when we go into a market, lead with the story first. And once we get the customer involved in the ecosystem of the story, then deliver them the product. And so what does that mean? We have a spite video. So TikTok's been incredible for us. We really nailed it. Um, I would say it's our primary driver at this point in time. We nailed it three months ago. Like we've had back-to-back -back 5 million view videos, multiple million view videos on the brand. And those incredible stories convert really well to ads. So when we go into a new market or a new store, we show our origin story video. It's called the Midday Square Spite video. And we tested that on TikTok until it hit virality. And now what we know from that is it's the fastest way to hook people into the story. So we don't lead with, hey, this is Midday Squares. It's a great chocolate with six grams of protein, four grams of fiber, and you should buy it. We lead with, hey, my name's Leslie Carls, and we started Midday Squares out of spite. For 100 years, the chocolate industry has been dominated by four big players, yada, yada, yada. We give the story, the actual story of what the hell we're trying to do, the David versus Goliath. And now we have your intrigue, right? We're on a platform that's built for entertainment. Do not go in front of a customer and sell them, entertain them, then sell them. And that's the strategy. It's really simple. I have to say, I am one of those people who are entertained. I've seen your videos before initiating this interview. And I must say, it is like a serial content where you do want to know like what's happening next. So amazing job. I'm chatting with Nick Seltrelli, a co-founder at Midday Squares. I hope you're enjoying our conversation. If you haven't already, follow or subscribe to Shopify Masters on your listening platform. And please leave us a review or feedback for the show. Thanks. So I do want to get into this side of running Midday Square is the fact that you are selling a food product. Can you tell us some of the obstacles that come within being in the food and beverage space? Oh, getting into the food and beverage space is a lifestyle more than anything. Like it's a 24-7 job, especially as you're scaling. There is atoms involved. And there's a reason why software business models are the best business models because you limit your complexity of moving particles because there, there really is not many. Um, with food or beverage in general, every incremental user requires an incremental movement of something. You don't just get to scale your Amazon web services. You actually have to deliver a can of soda, if that's what you're selling, a chocolate bar. So every incremental customer equals an incremental uh, execution required from you operationally. And then you mix that with food and safety that people are actually consuming your product, putting it into their bodies, that people could die if you get that wrong. I mean, this is for real, that people can get poisoned, that people can get sick. Uh, it's, it's, it's just endless what you have to do to execute in it. Then you have to get product. I mean, we did a, we did a, a rough study and by the time Midday Squares gets to you, Shuang, let's say you were eating it, roughly 3,000 people need to touch it. So if you go all the way back to the start of the supply chain in the farms, 
of how many people are required to process the raw materials, then ship those raw materials, then reprocess those raw materials, ship them again, get them to the plant, put them into a finished good, package that finished good, ship them again, get them to a distributor center, ship them again. Like by the time it gets to you, like 3,000 people at some point have to play a part in that. That means you have to coordinate. That means you have to get people on the same page. I have to, we have to as a team predict that if we want to do double the revenue next year, guess what? That means we have to buy double the supply of cocoa, double the supply of hemp, double the supply of this. So now we have to forecast. We have to make sure that our trading partners know our forecast, that we're booking that well in advance. They're like, there's no margin for error. Then you have to deal with shortages. If there are shortages, what's your contingency plan? What happens if a product can't be sold to you? Guess what? All cocoa doesn't taste the same. So if we have a backup supplier in our cocoa, I can't just put that cocoa into the product because it's going to taste different. So we have to have a backup way that we run that on our manufacturing plant. We literally have to have two recipes just to be able to handle the flavor differentiation of cocoa. And you have to have that across the board for every single one of your raw materials. You don't get into the food business if you want to make fast money. It's just not the place to do it. And on that point is you're also playing around with a lot of components while managing a thin margin, especially with food. You know, you can only push the pricing so far before the customer doesn't feel like they want to try something new. So how did you balance the pricing structure for midday squares to make sure that it's profitable, but also valuable to the customer? That's the hardest part. 90% of the work goes into anything you do before you even start the business. And I say this to every single food entrepreneur. You have to get product, pricing, and margin right before you ever sell an item. And that requires for you to do a lot of research. Speak to other founders that have been there, like myself. Speak to people that have succeeded in food. Speak to distributors. Speak to brokers. Like The biggest misconception is that you're going to want to get going in the food business right away if you start. And I'm here to tell you today that that is like immediate dopamine that is going to give you fast gratification, but is ultimately not what you need. What you need to nail is what is the price that you want to sell on the shelf at? The price you want to sell on the shelf at. So if I go to Whole Foods and you have an idea, what price do you want to sell that at? Then you got to make sure that you know what the grocery store needs to make on that. Usually, typically, it's 35 to 40 points of gross margin. Then you're going to have a distributor below that. In the smaller you are, the higher your distribution is, is going to cost you. So factor in 25 points of gross margin for the distributor. Now you arrive at your sell-in price, and you're going to want to make 60% after you give discounts, which means you probably have to be at 70% gross margin. And that is going to allow you to figure out what your cost needs to be because you're going to be cost to produce, package, and get it to your um, retailer plus 70% gross margin. Then all the things to get to your, oh, I want to sell this on the shelf for $2.49. If you do not get that right, you are fucked. <laughs> You're just going to, you're going to cause yourself a lot of pain. Oh yeah. By the way, Costco is going to need to be at a 40% discount from your nearest SRP. 
So if you don't factor that in today and you get that wrong, goodbye, Costco. All this work needs to go in before you ever even got to the point where you're like, okay, I'm ready to sell. So many moving parts and very proud of all the success and all the hurdles that the team has been able to overcome. Can you share some exciting news or new launches or what's next for Midday Squares with us? Midday Squares is all about being really not complex. So tight SKU count. Right now we're three epic SKUs. We're getting ready to launch Cookie Dough December 2022. That's going to start hitting the shelves nationally in the US and Canada. Uh, We think it's the most fire cookie dough in the market in North America at the macros that we're delivering it in, uh, plant-based, gluten-free, all that fun stuff. And the most important for us is that we keep on getting this right while being focused. I know there's a lot of shining objects of more SKUs, more product innovation. But if you look at all of the most successful food brands that do over $3 billion a year of revenue, most of those categories, let's just take Hershey's, for example, about 80% of their revenue is derived from two SKUs, Reese and Cookies and Cream. So this misconception that innovation and SKUs is what you should be focused on is false. And so for us, it's about tight SKU count and global distribution. And right now we're only in 4,000 of the 59,000 possible stores we can be in in North America. So we have our work cut out for us. We're very excited to follow along the journey and also keeping our eyes peeled on your social channels. Thank you so much for being here, Nick. Shwang, you're fire. <laughs> That's Nick Sotrali from Midday Squares. I'm Shwang Esther Shan, and I'll catch you next time on Shopify Masters. Shopify Masters.